Observatory and Planetarium Stellar Podcast. My name is Heather, and once again, I am joined by my wonderful colleague Courtney, and we're back for yet another episode. Like, it seems like no time ago that we were recording the last episode where we were talking about that great filter that still gives me nightmares. Thank you for that, Courts. Yes, once again, recording in the observatory, new favorite place to record. Um, and today is not going to be so scary, I hope. Um, because we have a guide to the subject. So we're not like traversing the universe alone here. Um, we have a guest today, Heather, don't we? Yes, a very special guest. Um, once again, Courtney and I are recording from the observatory boardroom because we liked it the last time. So um, not with us in the observatory boardroom, but from his very, very, very professional looking setup at home, we're joined by um, can I just say this? Our favorite PhD student currently. No, every PhD student, PhD student is our favorite PhD student. But we're joined today by Karam. Hi, Karam. How are you? Hello, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure being here with you. Uh, we are so happy to have you here today. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're currently coming up towards like the end of your PhD, which can be a bit intense. So we are so grateful um, for you coming along here today. Um, we're going to be talking a bit more about your research, but I'm wondering, just to start out with, can we get to know a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Kerem Osman Chubuk. And I'm a final year PhD student. Hopefully, fingers crossed, this year, like around the end of this year, I'll be submitting my thesis. And I'm working on molecular clouds. We are mapping our galaxy quite detailedly, but we will be talking about this in a moment. So yeah, I enjoy researching the universe and also i really love to share what i learn about universe and that's why i have this good looking setup here i do um regular streamings actually to turkish audience i mean that's that's incredible you have your own uh, youtube channel isn't it as well yes i and a couple of my friends started a youtube channel in the beginning of the pandemic and it's still going it's still really going well I mean, that is absolutely fabulous. Um, thank you so much. Uh, do you mind if we just jump straight into the questions? Sure, sure, please, okay. go ahead. Okie doke. So, Kram, can you tell us how did you become interested in astronomy and what brought you to ARMA? Uh -huh. um, it all started in my early high school years, actually. Um, I was good at maths and physics, but I had no idea about astronomy at all. Actually, unfortunately, there is or there was a lack of awareness about astronomy in Turkey. Actually, it's kind of everywhere in the world and we are trying to promote it, right? And I, of course, we all do see the sun, the moon, the stars in the night sky, but I had never appreciated what they really are 
And one day I remember reading a science magazine and one of the articles was saying that all the stars in the night sky are just like our sun. I was like, what? Um, in other words, the sun, the huge bright thing is a star. And I was so fascinated with this piece of information. Basically, it changed my life forever because I felt so small, so tiny, so insignificant. And after that moment, I wanted to learn more about space. And I kept reading. And yeah, I made my decision. I wanted to become an astronomer. So unfortunately, there were only four astronomy departments in Turkey. The astronomy community is quite small in Turkey. In Europe, normally astronomy is a branch of physics, but in Turkey, it's completely separate. Uh, we do have astronomy and space sciences departments. And I went one of them and I completed my both bachelor's and master's in there. After master's, I wanted to continue my research. And unfortunately, there was no radio astronomy in Turkey at all. I don't know, there are so many attracting fields in astronomy, but I was always more attracted to radio astronomy. Maybe it's because of the film Contact. Um, that was an amazing film, right? Um, so I wanted to do radio astronomy and I had to go abroad. I start looking for my options. And actually I should mention about this. As I said, the, the astronomy community in Turkey is quite small and almost everyone knows each, knows each other. In the past, three Turkish people completed their PhDs here in Arma Observatory. No, really? Yeah, yeah. And I knew all of them. And I... What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You knew all of them? Yeah, because as I said, the astronomy community is quite small in Turkey. Everyone knows each other. And I knew all of them. And I always heard great stories about AOP. And so I can say that AOP is a very well-known institute uh, in Turkey. Um, yeah. So we are class. Can I just put that out there? We are class. No, no, no bragging about ourselves there or anything. But yeah, we'll take it. That's fine. Uh, had no idea that we had such name recognition in Turkey specifically, but there you go. Um, so as I said, I always heard great stories about AOP and um, actually I knew how prestigious, how historical and how amazing AOP is. And when I saw an open PhD position, I basically jumped on it. And I was lucky enough to get an offer. Um, but also I have to mention, there's even more people, more Turkish people related with the history of Arma Observatory, because my previous supervisor, if he's listening to this, greetings to him, he was my supervisor in both my bachelor's and master's. 
he did spend some time here in Armagh Observatory uh, in late 90s. Uh, he did some research here. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, I wanted to be a part of AOP. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get an offer. So I'm so happy to be here. And as I said, this is my last year here. Hopefully, at the end of this year, I'll be submitting my thesis. Great. It's really nice to hear, actually, that we're like known elsewhere. Obviously, we think we're class, but good to know other people think we're class as well. Um, so you're saying your hand in your thesis soon. So your area of research is around molecular clouds. So can you describe what these are and why does it interest you as an area of research? Sure. Um, molecular clouds. Let's let's start with the clouds in our planet. So we are able to see clouds every day in Northern Ireland, right? Um, they are usually getting white. the way of stargazing and everything. Yep, great. Thick. <laughs> they are thick with they two C's. So thick, yeah. And that's actually another problem with my research field. Um, also, the molecular clouds can get really thick and they cause some other problems. But yeah, we will get to there. Um, the clouds in our planet, they are white, grayish, but they are all made of water molecules and also some dust and some ice particles. The molecular clouds in interstellar space are very similar, actually, just with different composition, different composition of molecules, let's say. Let's take a cloud from here to interstellar medium and change its composition. Let's add too much molecular hydrogen in it and then 100, actually more than 100 different molecules you should also add. And then voila, you have an interstellar molecular cloud. Uh, what really important is with molecular clouds? Let's yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. This table or that wall, that car over there, they are all made of different elements, right? Uh, and all of those elements are formed or produced in stars. And everything we know of. We are coming, I mean, even our body's elements are coming from stars. Um, and but if anyone at home would like to learn more about that, they can come see We Are Stars here at the Planetarium because I just did that two o'clock. Oh. So if people want to know more about <laughs> that particular part, they can come here and learn about it. <laughs> Sorry, Krem, continue. <laughs> yeah, sure. And all of those stars you can see are formed in molecular clouds. So in some sense, everything is coming from molecular clouds. That's the origin of everything. So that's why we really probe the molecular clouds and learn as much as we can. Because there's a cycle, just like our life cycles here. Stars form in molecular clouds, and then they live quite a long life, like from million years to trillion years. And then they die. And when they die, they eject their material into the molecular clouds again, uh, into the surrounding space. But what stars are doing in their cores is they are 
burning elements and producing new elements, right? For example, our star sun is uh, burning hydrogens at the moment and then combining hydrogens and producing helium elements. So basically it's changing its composition all the time. And when a star dies, when they eject their material into the molecular clouds, they also change the composition of molecular clouds. So there is constant evolution in molecular clouds. Um, so if we observe, if we learn more about molecular clouds, then we can drive many things about star formation, star evolution, galactic evolution, lots of stuff. So that's why it's a really important research field, um, the molecular class. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty good justification um, because everything that's ever existed came about because of molecular collides. I would say that's pretty good reason to get into them. Heather, what do you think? Yeah, 100%. We need to know everything there is to know about molecular clouds. And you said um, a word there, Craig, I mean, like observing. And like, obviously we can see with the naked eye clouds in our sky, particularly here in Northern Ireland, as we have stated. But I just wonder, so how do you actually observe a molecular cloud? And like, are they visible to the naked eye? Like our clouds would be here on the earth or, you know, what, what can we physically actually see? Yeah. Uh, the short answer is, yes, actually, they are visible to naked eye, but not really. Let me explain this. Okay, let's go back in time when we didn't discover other wavelengths in the electromagnetic spectrum, okay? Um, astronomers used to use normal, simple telescopes. And imagine that you are pointing your telescope in uh, to night sky and observing thousands of stars. They are all in different colors. And while you are rotating your uh, telescope, you encounter with a dark patch in the night sky. Like you were able to see thousands of stars and then suddenly there is a patch which you cannot see anything. It's just pitch black. And then if you rotate your uh, telescope a little bit more, then you are able to see stars again. But there is a very dark region between those two uh, areas. So astronomers used to believe that we had uh, voids in the universe, basically emptiness. They used to believe that we don't have anything in those areas. But when we developed um, our instruments and when we discovered other wavelengths such as gamma rays, infrared, radio, then we started to see the details of those clouds. Actually, we are still calling them as dark clouds, but instead of being empty, they are actually quite dense. Um, just imagine like a wall between us and the stars. So the visible light cannot go through it. That's why we were not able to see anything. But with the help of infrared, uh, waves or radio waves 
now we are able to see behind of those clouds and also the interior of those clouds. So basically, molecular clouds are not visible to naked eye, but we are able to see them with naked eye if we can see, I mean, if we compare them with the background radiation, let's say, just like this t-shirt now, actually our eyes, I'm wearing a black t-shirt at the moment, and our eyes actually cannot see black. We think that we are seeing this, actually, no, we are not seeing this, we are seeing around us. I mean, you are seeing background of myself at the moment, and that's why you understand there is something here. But actually, you are blind to this. You are not seeing this T-shirt. Yeah. Are you, are you trying to tell me I've gone my entire adult life thinking I can see black, but actually I can't see black? Exactly. We are not able to see black. My mind is blown here. Like my brains are coming out my ears. I just, I, I have, I'm the same as Courtney. I am today years old when I discovered that my eyes cannot actually see black. Wow. Yeah, because basically there is no radiation coming from this T-shirt into your eyes in visible wavelength. So if you look at my T-shirt in infrared, you would be able to see it. But basically there is no radiation coming from this T-shirt to you at the moment. Yeah. Cool. So basically we, can, we can't see molecular clouds, but we can see the bit that we can't see because of them. <laughs> yeah, we can see their obstruction. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, there are some very nearby molecular clouds, like Orion Nebula. And you can see it with naked eye if you are really far away from the light pollution and if you really have a clear sky. Um, but you can only see it like in black and white, uh, there is no color. But what we do with our instruments is we use long exposure times and we accumulate light coming from the source. And then when you accumulate enough light, then you are able to see the colors. So actually, if you Google for Orion Nebula, you will see so colorful, brilliant image, but unfortunately to the naked eye, it's just black and white. I actually talked about this on the Star Tracker in January, so I can see the Orion Nebula from my house because I live in the middle of nowhere, so there's no light pollution, um, but it is black and white, and I do always warn people, especially if I'm doing a night sky in the theater or anything, I'm like, it just won't look like the Hubble images, but um, you can see it, it just won't be as spectacular. Yeah, exactly. I really love to observe Orion Nebula. Actually, if you have a binocular or a telescope, it's even much better, yeah, than naked eye, of course. Um, but how do we observe molecular clouds? So yeah, we just said it's not visible to naked eye, but now we have very high technology infrared telescopes and um, radio telescopes. So in my research, we are using a radio telescope, which is located in Australia. It's called MOPRA radio telescope. 
And actually, radio telescopes are, actually, there are different types of radio telescopes, but ours is a single dish radio telescope, but it's slightly bigger uh, than what we use at home as a satellite dish. It's 22 meters in diameter. Um, so it's, uh, and there are even bigger than that, like, like 100 meters across, or if you remember the Arecibo radio telescope, it was 300 meters in diameter. And there is one, the biggest single dish telescope in the world. It's, it, it's in China, uh, it's called FAST, uh, and its diameter is 500 meters. It's huge, so big. So yeah, um, what we do is we do observe carbon monoxide in the molecular clouds. And we are trying to map where carbon monoxide is. And basically um, the radio telescope gets signals from uh, the radiation of carbon monoxide molecules. And then of course it's not visible to our eye, but with the help of the computers, we can change those electrics, electrical signals into some meaningful um, um, image, let's say. And then we become able to see what we have in those molecular clouds. So why do you observe carbon monoxide in particular? Now, for most people, if I'm thinking right, carbon monoxide is that gas that for a few years ago they were very cautious of because it caused a few issues here locally. Um, so why carbon monoxide in particular? Now, yeah, that's a good question. Um, actually, carbon, mono carbon monoxide is a very poisonous gas. It's very dangerous. And we really don't want to come across with um, carbon monoxide because it's odorless, it's colorless, you cannot feel it, but it's really harmful for um, human life. Um, but we really want to see carbon monoxide in molecular clouds because they are great tracers. Let me explain this. Um, there are more than 100 molecules in molecular clouds and their abundances is quite different. It varies a lot. And the most dominant, most abundant uh, molecule in molecular clouds is the molecular hydrogen. But these molecular clouds are quite cold, like minus 250 degrees Celsius. That is super chilly. It is super chilly. And we usually use, we actually use Kelvin. So as you know, zero Kelvin means absolute zero. Nothing can be colder than that. Um, and these molecular clouds are around 10 to 20 Kelvin. Um, so they are really cold. And the most abundant molecule, molecular hydrogen, unfortunately, don't emit any radiation in these cold um, conditions. Luckily, carbon monoxide is the second most abundant molecule, and it radiates all the time. It's 
it really likes to emit radiation it it always gives us lots of information like i'm here i'm now rotating i'm vibrating now the temperature here is something like this it's always talking to us and we can understand the interior condition of the molecular clouds by using carbon monoxide and multiple other um, molecules as well but the best tracer is always carbon monoxide. Can I ask, that this is just me, and I don't know why this has just come to my head, with all of this carbon monoxide you know, being quite abundant in these clouds, does that mean like space is quite poisonous towards human beings as well as, you know, everything else, like the heat and the radiation and stuff? That's so correct. If you go into a molecular cloud and try to breathe basically it would be super poisonous but the density plays a huge role here let me talk a little bit about the density of these molecular clouds but let's start with our planet first so if you go to the sea level okay my question is how many molecules would you expect to see per cubic centimeter at the sea level? Of carbon monoxide? No, of anything, all molecules. Oh, of okay. Uh, who, see, see, people asking us questions like this, putting me really on the spot here, Karim. Um, I'm going to say parts per million. Oh, is that big enough? <laughs> Courtney, do you have a guess? This is not how it works. I'm not supposed to be answering the questions. I actually don't have a clue. Um, you're going to have to tell me. Yeah, okay. Per centimeter, per cubic centimeter, we said. It's so small, right? At sea level, we have billion times billion molecules per cubic centimeter. Actually, even it's more than that, but let's leave it there. Um, if you go to one of the most advanced labs in the world and try to see the density in the vacuum chambers, our best vacuum chambers can go down up to billion molecules per cubic centimeter. So we say it's a vacuum, but there still is billion molecules per cubic centimeter. If you go to interstellar space, this amount drops to only a couple of atoms per cubic centimeter. Look at the difference. Like empty. Like empty. And wow. Yeah, the molecular clouds are quite dense, we say. Um, and actually, the density, is, density varies in molecular clouds, but some part of the molecular clouds form stars, right? And the star-forming regions have a density of um, million molecules per cubic centimeter. Million. But in the vacuums, we have billion molecules 
So what I'm trying to say is molecular clouds are dense enough to form stars, but they are still vacuum to us. So they're dense, but not. <laughs> Yeah. Can I just point out there in star forming regions, I did say parts per million for sea level. So I'm just going to take that as a little win for myself, <laughs> even though I was completely wrong. I think you're, you have the honor of the next question, Heather. Yeah. And, you know, Krem, just listening to you talk there, like you you know so much, obviously this is your research, you have to know a lot about it, but you talk about it so passionately. Um, and I think this is going to be maybe an easy question for you like so why does this area of research interest you and what does it actually tell us about the universe we are able to see thousands of actually hundreds of thousands galaxies right they are all in different shapes we can see their details how their structures are how many spiral arms do they have or what is the distribution of molecular clouds in those galaxies? We can see lots of galaxies and we can understand their shape quite well. But there is a problem. We really don't know much about our own galaxy. The problem is we are in it. We are not able to see the details of our own galaxy because the molecular clouds and dust obscures lots of things, lots of information. If we had a chance to leave our galaxy and look at it from a distance, then that would be great. We could understand everything. But all the Milky Way images you have seen so far, they are only artistic impressions. We are not able to see the spiral structure of our galaxy. What we are trying to do is, we are trying to map the distribution of the molecular clouds in our galaxy. And thus, we will be able to put these molecular clouds or molecular mass into correct 3D positions. And then we will be able to structure our galaxy, the real structure of our galaxy. And also, let me try to explain how hard is structuring the galaxy, our own galaxy. Imagine that you are stationary here and there is a forest 10 kilometers away you, but that's a very big forest, right? And I want you to get information about that forest what is the, how many types of trees over there? What kind of animals live there? What is the density of the trees? What, how, how is the distribution of those trees? What is the inner conditions of the forest, the temperature, etc. anything. But you are not able to move from here. You have to observe it from here. And there are 10 kilometers between you and the forest. Imagine how would you get information from that forest? And it's a very dense forest. It's really hard. I mean, do I have the option of sending in a drone? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. You have to be here. That's, that's 
that's our condition here. We cannot leave. We cannot leave our planet here, and we have to. We have to observe everything from here, only from here. If you want to see the backside of this table, you can easily go behind it and then see it. But we are not able to do that here. We have to observe everything from only one point of view and try to understand the details. And it's really hard. And it's really hard for our galaxy. So you're trying to create a new map of... So trying to create a new sort of map of the Milky Way galaxy to try and see that spiral. And I do think what people don't realize is that when you see images of the Milky Way galaxy, it is an artist's impression. But could you imagine if you managed to get that map all together and we realized the galaxy was a completely different shape than what we thought? <laughs> yeah, that would be hilarious, actually. Um, it? It, it actually uh, changes all the time when we learn new information about our galaxy. Um, for example, in the last decade, we learned that there is a warp in our galaxy. Uh, it's not completely flat. There is a warp. Its shape is uh, different than we thought. And so, yeah, it changes all the time. When we learn new information, we change our image. We edit our understanding. Editing uh, understanding, does it, does it make sense? adjust our understanding adjust yeah okay that's much better yeah 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 well i mean that's a very good area of research obviously to map the actual galaxy and i suppose people don't think about it in terms of that we we're looking at it side on like when i talk about you can see the milky way but remember you're inside it and you're looking at it side on so it's not going to be like the spiral shape that we recognized from the artist impression so yeah absolutely that's an absolutely fascinating area of research um and incredibly useful and obviously adjusts with time um as all science should when it learns new things adjust itself um but yeah heather what do you think i mean i'm still trying to get you know past the fact that i can't see black <laughs> but and honestly i this is hearing you talk about this Karem it's just it's been really amazing and like all the success for you like in the finishing of your PhD and like going on to you know continue to hopefully research this and you know you're you know you're I mean I've learned a lot today so like please do keep explaining and educating people about this uh, because I could honestly sit and listen to you all day that was that was fantastic but we have sadly come to the end of today's session that's quite sad well yeah it was too quick actually but yeah i really enjoyed my time it was a great pleasure for me thanks for the invite again yeah you're, i really enjoyed you're so welcome um courtney do you want to remind people how they can uh, contact us if they want to ask karem any questions about molecular sure. clouds Yep. So our handles everywhere is at Arma Planet. We do have an option on Anchor where you can send us voice notes if you want us to include them in the podcast. You can also access um, an ask, asking question section there. And I will also put the link to Krem's uh, YouTube channel in the footnotes for this episode so people can go find it that way as well, if that's okay. Um, so we've come to the end now, Heather. I do have a, a final question that I think I might pose to Karem this time. Are you ready for like this completely out of the blue question? Yeah, sure. 
hey, Karem, would you like some space or do you need some space after talking to us about molecular clouds? Yeah, we definitely, yeah, we all definitely need some space. Space is for all of us. Spot on. That's a good, let's go get some coffee. Observatory and Planetarium is a registered charity and part of the Northern Ireland Government Department for Communities. To find out more about AOP, follow us on Facebook, Twitter at Armagh Planet, Instagram at Armagh Planet, YouTube at Armagh Observatory and Planetarium, or check out our website where we host our blog, Astronauts, www.arma.space.